Good morning. Uh, happy Easter. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. I'm just checking where all the Anglicans are. You expose yourself. <laughs> See, we went to the private schools. Uh, also, Christos and Nesti. No Greeks. Okay. So actually, there's one Greek over there, but I already got him earlier with my Christos and Nesti. So if there's only one Greek, I'll cancel the Greek section of the sermon. It's good to know. First rule of public speaking, know your audience. Anyway. Um, we're going to continue our series called The Observer, and, uh, but before we get there, um, Ross explained that we've got grow groups, and we really as a church are passionate about helping people take steps in their faith, faith journey wherever you're at. Um, but one of the grow groups that uh, I have the privilege of being involved in is called This Is Yours, and really it exists to help people uh, get integrated into church and to find a home here. You know, sometimes you come here and like, it feels like everyone else knows each other, especially if you knew everyone else knows each other, they've got the secret handshake that you don't know about yet. Joking, there's no secret handshake. Um, but, uh, and you're wondering, hey, how do you actually integrate it? How do you get to know people here? How do you get plugged in? How do you have a great church experience? Uh, that's what This Is Yours is for, and it exists to help people um, really take their first steps and get to know about our church and what we believe. So if that's you, if you're sitting here going, I think I'm that person, I'm, I'm new to church, or I, I really feel like I'm uh, taking the first few steps of my faith, please sign up for the This Is Yours course. It would be great to have you. Other than that, today I'm going to be speaking about the resurrection. And uh, the resurrection is the central uh, message of the Christian faith. The whole Christian faith hinges around it. And so uh, it's a great time of year, obviously, to speak about it. But here's the thing is that we've grown so accustomed to the fact that Christianity claims that Jesus rose from the dead that it, it feels more like legend than cold, hard historical fact. The fact that you're sitting in your chair, that's a fact. It's not legend. That's not myth. That's not hearsay. That's a fact. And it's just as real as the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It actually happened. And so that's what we're going to be getting into today. We're going to look at the resurrection and evidence for it, and then what it means for us um, as people, and what it means for the planet. So that's a little bit where we're going. So here's a thought. Imagine a famous person today, someone that you know, that you see on uh, TV or YouTube, or you see in the news. Imagine a famous person today died, was buried, and after three days rose from the dead. Imagine that actually happened. Imagine, you know, CNN, Fox News, all these guys reporting it, people on the, the Instagram and the social media sharing this stuff. Like, can you believe it? And just to, to help you get some context, imagine a, a current political, religious, or thought leader actually went through that. And I'm going to give you some context. So here's some political, religious, or thought leaders in our world, in our time. First one, Oprah. Imagine Oprah died, was buried and after three days rose from the dead. Imagine what that would do to the planet. Or uh, maybe you're not an Oprah fan, you're like, hey, it's a little bit contentious. Simon Sinek, for millennials. You can see he's got that smart look. It's like for millennials, very smart what he does. Imagine Simon Sinek all of a sudden is reported that he got arrested by the North Koreans or something, I don't know, uh, Chinese, and he gets executed by that government and buried, and after three days he rises from the dead. What would ha happen? Uh, maybe it's not your, your guy. Maybe this is my, one of my guys that I love, Trevor Noah. Eh? Love him. He's uh, brilliant. But imagine Trevor Noah went through that process, and he actually died a brutal death. It's like he looks all glamorous here in a suit, but he's stripped naked, he's beaten, he's disfigured, he dies, and after three days he rises again. Maybe just to cover all the spheres, our last person, Kurt Darren. <laughs> imagine, 
just Kurt Darren. Like contentious, I know, but Jesus was also contentious in his day. But in, in a South African context, imagine Kurt Darren was publicly executed. You get where this is going. I was buried after three days. Rise again, because that's... But imagine they didn't just die, they were executed in a very public manner by a government that opposed them. Not just like by a, a rogue of people, but by a government that opposed them and that specialized in executions. They were, they were actually executed by a foreign government, by a group of soldiers that specialized in execution. That's the thing we don't know about Roman soldiers that executed Jesus. Like they specialized in execution, and if they botched the job, they themselves would have been executed. So they were incentivized cunningly um, to do their job properly. And so then the, the, the statements get thrown around about Jesus. Well, maybe he didn't quite die. Maybe he survived. Like he just like he was almost dead, and people thought he was dead, but he was actually just faking it. But I mean, that would be like saying, well, imagine so and, well, Kurt Darren or Oprah Winfrey survived hanging or survived the electric chair. Because those are modern forms of execution. And crucifixion was an execution method perfected by the Romans. They were very good at it. It was designed to be as brutal as possible and obviously quite deadly. You know, there was one day in, in the history of Israel where the Romans crucified 2,000 people on a single day. And not a single case of them, one of them surviving. In fact, they executed in the hundreds of thousands of people during that period that they occupied Israel. Not a single case of any survivors because it was an execution method, not a punishment method. It was a way of killing people. And then a few days later, people saw the person like Kurt Darren or Oprah walking around, and they weren't like, you know, convalescing on the med. Because that's the difference. People are like, well, maybe they didn't quite die. Maybe they like almost died, and then they, like, Jesus got off the cross. But that, like, they didn't go and see Jesus, and Jesus was like sick or like really wounded and like convalescing and getting better. He was resurrected. He was fully 100% alive. I mean, he, he had been whipped so badly, his entire back would have been raw, and that alone was enough to put people into shock because of the blood loss. Then they, they hammered nails through this part of the wrist, not the hand, this part of the wrist, and through the heel. Hammered. And Jesus wasn't hobbling around like, yo, close call there, Jesus. Like, he, he died. He really died. And then he wasn't, like, hobbling around afterwards like he had just somehow escaped the, the, the cross. He was 100% healthy, healthy as they'd ever seen him. I think in, in some of the, the modern senses, like, because we don't have public execution. I've never been to one. If you've been to a public execution, raise your hand. Joking. It's <laughs> awkward. I think the most public execution we've had in our kind of day is Saddam Hussein, who um, someone sneaked a video out there, and of course there, there's uh, some conspiracy theories, as there will always be. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you've got to keep the conspiracy theories coming, otherwise you, people won't go to your blog anymore and you won't make money. So, um, but anyway, so, but, but he was publicly executed. But here's the thing about the, the Romans, that Romans actually loved public executions. And they specialized in them. They were as brutal and deadly as possible because it was kind of like their PR marketing campaign. You didn't want to take the person out of where everyone could see them and kill them privately. You wanted as many people as humanly possible to see them die because then if you wanted to be a revolutionary, you would knew what was waiting for you. 
It was a discouragement to be a revolutionary. Nowadays, we're like, ah, oh, I'm a rev revolutionary. You weren't saying that in the first century because execution was by crucifixion and you had seen thousands of people die that way. And this wasn't a grainy video. This was a thousand eyewitnesses, thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses. They actually took Jesus to a, a very public road where as many people as possible would pass by to see him. So this wasn't like, hey, there are five people in a room somewhere. This was a very public event in a town about the size of Benoni, which is where Kurt Darren, you see the link here. About 600,000 people in Jerusalem, which basically means everyone was either there or knew someone that was there. It's not like a massive metropolis and it's like, oh, I heard apparently... No, it was our witnesses had flooded the city. Everyone had, was either there or knew someone that was there. And imagine after all of that, within seven weeks, some of Oprah's or Kurt Darren's followers were preaching publicly on the streets that this person had been resurrected from the dead. Imagine that actually happened today. I mean, we'd laugh. We'd say, are you mad? This is a conspiracy theory. This is crazy. But imagine that same group of followers that were preaching this Oprah or Kurt Darren or Trevor Noah was crucified and died and rose from the dead. Imagine they adamantly believed that for the rest of their lives. And they were in complete unity on the point. It's not like there were some believers that claimed Jesus rose from the dead and some that claimed he hadn't. Or some followers that said, no, he resurrected. And some said, no, he managed to slip off the cross. They were all absolutely consistent in the story throughout their lives until their very death. And all of his followers, except for John, died, were executed for their belief that he rose from the dead. And there were no variations in their stories. They didn't develop. It's not like one of them got old and then had like a moment like, actually, oh, we made up the story that he rose from the dead. Like that never happened. They really believed this. Imagine what we'd say if that happened in our day and age. We'd be like, ah, prove it. He rose from the dead, prove it. You know, if you've got an empty tomb, if the tomb's not empty, you just go, well, there's the body. You obviously didn't rise from the dead, but you've got a problem of an empty tomb. And then you say, well, maybe someone stole the body. Or maybe uh, they were hallucinating. You didn't actually see Jesus. You thought you saw Jesus. Or maybe you're mad. Or maybe you didn't really die. And these are all some of the things that have been said. Well, what happened to Jesus? And what happened to this first century rabbi who was executed and then claims of him rising from the dead? And imagine those followers of Kurt Darren or Oprah went around preaching the resurrection of the dead, which sounds completely ludicrous. Uh, and, and eventually they planted churches all over the ancient world, and wherever they planted them, the religious Jews persecuted them, and the pagans persecuted them, and the Roman government persecuted them. It doesn't matter who was persecuting them. It was growing and growing and growing, and more and more believe, people believed fervently that this person had risen from the dead. And then an entire new faith was born into the world that is today the world's biggest faith. Imagine that all happened around Oprah or Kurt Darren. It's funny, right? Like you, you can't imagine it, but this really happened. Like as surely as you're sitting in your chair today, this happened in our planet. So we're actually going to look at some of this stuff and some of the facts that surround the, the resurrection. And we want to go, how, do we, how can we really believe this? So here's three truths that virtually all scholars, whether they're Christians or not, believe is true. 
believers a fact, three truths that support the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty by a group of women on a Sunday morning. Fact number two, Jesus' disciples had real experiences with one whom they believed was the resurrected Christ. Fact number three, as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which had the resurrection at the center, the Christian church grew and was established. So we're going to deal with these three facts. Fact number one, the empty tomb. You see, the resurrection and the empty tomb was preached in the very city where Jesus was executed and buried. It's not like the, the believers said, ooh, this is hectic, we're going to go over there, Shh, Blicky Fontaine, start preaching there that he rose from the dead. They started preaching in the very city that happens. This is like the person gets executed on the corner of Argyle and Amgeni. Because that's where it was. It was a crossroads in the ancient world. We had all seen it. We knew where he was buried. And then they started preaching right here on our doorstep. He rose from the dead. It wasn't done in some far off corner. It was like, hey, we're coming to tell you about a man that died over there. They started their first place of preaching was in the very city Jesus had taught. You know, even the earliest Jewish arguments admit the empty tomb. In fact, there's two extra biblical sources. Now, those sources not in the New Testament where Jewish writers admit that the tomb was empty. That the body of Jesus wasn't there, right? Because it's a very short preaching to saying Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he's like, there's the tomb, there's his body. Oh, didn't think of that one. The problem is, is that the body wasn't there. And so the authorities couldn't just produce the body. The other thing is that the gap between the event, his death, and when they start preaching was only 50 days. You see, legends develop over decades and centuries, and you see progression of thought. It's like the early people said this, but later, 100 years later, they started saying that, and 200 years later, they started saying that. There's no progression on the resurrection story. The earliest people preaching the resurrection said Jesus Christ died, and on the third day rose again, and I'm standing here today, 2,000 years later, saying Jesus Christ died, and on the third day, he rose again. Amen. There's no development of thought. This isn't a legend that grows over time. Jesus' tomb was never venerated. You know, all the prophets, they had a tomb. Jesus, some of the New Testament guys, uh, speakers, they actually said, you can go and see the tombs of the prophets. They're right there. It was common in Judaic practices to venerate a shrine, and people would go and visit them. There's no shrine venerated as the tomb of Christ except for empty ones. And everyone knew where Jesus was buried. It's not like he was buried somewhere hidden in a corner when they claimed that there was an empty tomb. They said, ah, but no one knew where he was buried. Everyone knew it. It was a public burial. And you know, there's no serious, credible alternative account anywhere in ancient records of what happened to Jesus. Second thing is that the resurrection appearances were real. The disciples absolutely believed they had seen the resurrected Christ. Evidence is found all over the Gospels, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 8. I pass unto you what was most important. This is the writings of Paul, the apostle. And what had also been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. 500 followers at one time. And he says, most of whom are still alive. In other words, if you want to go and check, go back to Jerusalem. You can go find them and verify yourself the facts of what I'm saying to you. Verse 7, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. 
This is actually an ancient creed, a statement of faith, a statement of fact, and historians agree that this is basically a statement of our witnesses. And there's three possibilities that exist in this, because these guys really believe this. Number one, were they lying? Number two, were they hallucinating? They thought they saw Jesus, but they hadn't. Well, number three, they really did see the resurrected Christ. I'm going to deal with, the pro- the, the, were they lying or were they hallucinating? Obviously, if they were lying, it would have been a short-lived lie because they could have gone and produced the body from the tomb straight away. But here's the other thing. People generally lie to gain something, not to lose something. Were they willing to die for their lie? People don't understand this, but in their day, there were no book deals. There was no online giving. There was no 700 Club and CBN. There was just jail, being jailed and being beaten and sentenced to death, being dragged out of cities and stoned. Why? Because we believe in the resurrection. Oh, really? We're going to kill you for that. That was the story of the early believers. So people generally lie to get something, not to lose something. And here's the thing. Not one of those disciples stopped believing that he had really resurrected from the dead, even in the face of their own death. Because under pressure, maybe one of them would have cracked. Not a single one did. Answer to the second problem, were they hallucinating? You know, if one person has a, says, I saw Jesus, you're like, oh, well, maybe. If two people say, hey, we both saw Jesus at the same time, it's like, well, they're both hallucinating the same thing at the same time. But if 500 people say, we saw Jesus at the same time, we're all 500 hallucinating the same thing at the same time, I mean, that's an impossibility. The odds of that are tiny. They really believe they had seen the resurrected Jesus and they were willing to die for it. And the third fact is that the story of the resurrection or the fact of the resurrection is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Have you ever heard stories of saying, well, Christianity wasn't the only religion that claimed a resurrection from the dead. There were also pagan religions that believed in some gods that were died and rose from the dead. Anyone heard that? Objection to the Christian faith is quite a common objection out there. See, the only problem with that is that at the time in, in first century Israel, there were no other pagan uh, religions making those claims. All of those claims came after the resurrection of Jesus, not before. And none in that area. They were all outside. And the other problem with, with this is that the early church wasn't completely Jewish. And Jewish people for thousands of years had been separating themselves from pagan thinking and pagan practices. We don't eat like you. We don't dress like you. We don't worship like you. We don't speak like you. We raise our children differently. We've got our own seven-day system of the week. We've got different holidays. We're completely separate. And the worst thing for a Jewish person to do would be to borrow from a pagan culture. And then you're saying, really, at the heart of the Christian faith, that early church was completely Jewish, and they just stole this one pagan thought and inserted it into the very center of their faith? That makes absolutely no sense. Which leaves us with the, with the belief that the guys who saw Jesus really believed this and they started preaching it. And as a result, the Christian faith spread all over the ancient world. And it's still spreading over the world today. You know, in the last like, 40, 50 years, there's been like 100 million Christians, people coming to faith in China all centered on the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And we just go, well, isn't that just the Christian faith? Imagine a new faith started centered on the resurrection of Oprah Winfrey. I mean, we go, that's crazy. How could anyone ever believe that? And yet this is at the heart of what we believe. 
And so now we're left with three facts, which all ancient scholars of the, of the, the, the resurrection, whether they're Christian or not, all agree on. They just don't all agree whether he really rose from the dead. But now you've got three facts that you have to explain away. And a stolen body theory and group hallucination and mystery religions just doesn't seem to cut it. So what does it mean for us and what does it mean for the world if there really was a first century moral and religious teacher that taught people about the kingdom of God and taught people about a father that loved them and walked around healing the sick and raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers and loving and restoring prostitutes into communal relationships and doing extraordinary things, feeding hungry people and calming storms. Imagine there really was such a one that really was sentenced to death, buried, and after three days rose again. What does that mean for us? I think there's three things that it means. I'm going to focus on two of them. Number one, it, firstly, it means that Jesus Christ really is who he said he was. Secondly, what God did for Jesus in raising him from the dead, he'll do for you. And thirdly, um, what God did once, he'll do again. What God did once, he'll do again. And so Jesus, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus spoke about the resurrection before his own. And there's this amazing story of Jesus who had been out ministering in a bunch of towns, and then he gets this message that his friend Lazarus was sick and gravely ill. And he keeps ministering for a while, and then he returns to Bethany where they lived. And there was Lazarus, and he had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus was really good friends with them. And he arrives in Bethany, and Lazarus has already died, and his sisters are distraught. And Jesus has this conversation with Martha. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. That is an outrageous claim to make. Imagine Oprah Winfrey, Simon Sinek, Barack Obama, anyone that you love and admire getting up and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You would be, you arrogant. Dude. Something rude. I don't know how to finish that sentence without dude. This is church after all. You see, Jesus doesn't leave us the option of just believing he was a good person because good people don't go around saying, I am the resurrection and the life. They don't do that. He either is God or he's a psychopath. There's no in-between here. He forces us to the point of decision. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Jesus asks every single person, do you believe this about me? You see, biblically, the concept of death and life is far different from what we understand. We generally talk about someone as either being dead or being alive. They're either dead, zero, or alive, one, binary. So either or. But biblically, it's far more nuanced than that. Death is anywhere where we have lost God's life, and life is anywhere where God's life exists. That's why the Greek language in the New Testament uses two words to describe physical life and spiritual life. Physical life is the Greek word bios, where we get biology from. And spiritual life is called zoe, where we get the name, girl's name Zoe from. 
spiritual life. And so what the Bible teaches is that you can have bios, you can have physical life, but not have Zoe spiritual life. So you can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. And so Jesus, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not just talking about bios, physical life, he's also talking about Zoe, spiritual life. And our language doesn't quite have it. Some of the closest things we have, we've got a few things we talk about having a dead leg. Now what we mean, we don't mean your leg actually died. I mean, your mate came up to you and need you in the leg. Anyone, any guy that went to high school knows what this is like? The best is when you, someone would be standing there and two guys would come from either edge, so I didn't give him a dead leg, and either the guy would just crumple or go like, because <laughs> my legs are not responding to my head anymore. A dead leg. Or you say something like this, I just feel dead inside. It's like I'm physically alive on the outside, but inside I'm so numb, I'm so disconnected that I feel like a shell of a human being. Or how about this phrase, my love for you has died. Ooh, no one wants to hear that. What you're really saying is this area of my life where there had been so much life and so much joy and so much fullness, suddenly it's dead within me. Or lastly, you're dead to me. You might be physically alive, but to me there's no relationship, and so you basically cuddle from me. These are all uh, uh, phrases in the English language that approximate something in biblical language of having bios, physical life, but not having uh, Zoe, spiritual life, because in some areas of our life we are alive but dead. Biblically, this plays out again and again. You see, the Bible talks us about the need to be born again. It says, hey, you're born with bios, but now you need to be born with Zoe. You're born with physical life, but now you need to be born with spiritual life. Why? Because every person, because of their sin, is born physically alive, but spiritually cut off from God. And you need to experience another birth. That which is dead needs to come alive. You know how I experienced this? I grew up in church, and I used to come to church, and I'd hear the singing. And I'd be like this. It was so boring. Sing the same songs. People seem really into it. I was like, yo, I'm singing. I've heard this song before. I actually volunteered, not for the, because we had, we had the overhead projector, those. That's how old I am. And I used to do that because I was like, yo, I'd rather have a job than having to sing these songs every Sunday. It's true. And then I'd come to read my Bible and I'd be reading it. And I was like, this is confusing. It doesn't make any sense to me, and it's boring. Why? Because I had uh, bios, I had physical life, but I was spiritually dead. But then when I met Jesus, and Jesus came into my life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he brought life into that part of who I am, suddenly I was in that same environment singing those same songs, and I was lost in the presence of God, and it was the best part of my week because that which had been dead had come alive. And I'd go home and I'd open my Bible and I'd read it. And the stuff that I found confusing and boring and irrelevant something, sometimes was so alive to me that I'd read late into the night. Because that which was dead had come alive because He is the resurrection and the life. And what God had done once in the person of Jesus, He'll do again. And what He did for Jesus, He'll do for you. In any area of your life that is dead and needs life. Some of us, we're dead from the results, in parts of our life, from the results of sin. 
I think we all know how this works. At some stage in our life, we start to dabble in some practice, and we do it because it's fun, and our friends are doing it, and there's a community of people there. But fast forward three months, six months, two years, five years, that which was just a fun, light-hearted interest on the weekend has overtaken our life. That substance that you enjoyed now and again suddenly is your go-to place when times are tough or you're in stress. Or that dabbling in pornography as a teenager has become an addiction. Or that sense of selfishness in your marriage where you're trying to get something suddenly has degenerated into selfish scorekeeping that's dividing people apart. And it started with this fun thing, but the, the, the track record of that in our life has become absolutely destructive. And if we're honest, we want to be free of it, but we don't know how. And Jesus comes to us and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That which is dead will come alive. And he's done, God did it once and he'll do it again. And he did it for Jesus and he'll do it for you. He'll set you free. The dead parts of your heart will come alive again. Or maybe you've got a different form of death. The dreams that you used to have are gone. And you're not sure what to live for. It feels like you're just existing, wandering aimlessly to life, looking for something to give your life meaning. And you thought it was a career, and you thought it was a family, and you thought it was something else. But if you're really honest, you're still waiting for something to make you feel alive. And the Bible says without vision, the people perish. And you're walking around physically alive, but within you, you're carrying the perishing of a visionless life. And Jesus comes to you, and he looks you squarely in the face, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. What God has done once, he'll do again. And what he did for Jesus, he'll do for you. Old men shall dream dreams. And young men shall see visions. Or maybe for you, you've experienced a type of death because you've been rejected. Been cast aside. You've been unloved. You've been walked out on. You loved someone and they didn't love you back. You're trying so hard to figure out what it means to be a husband or a father when you didn't have one yourself. You're trying so hard to be a, a loving mother, but it seems all you can remember in your own experience was a mother that criticized you. You see, the Bible talks about all of these things as a form of death that we carry around on the inside of us. And we try to numb with series and drink and friends and sex and pornography and career and money and success. But when we're really alone and we're really by ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, it just feels like part of us, though we are alive, part of us is really dead. And you see it was that death that Jesus Christ carried for you on Easter Friday. And it was his life that he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday and said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am your resurrection and your life. Anything that is dead, I can make alive again. Because what God has done once, he'll do again. And what God did for you, for Jesus, he'll do for you. Let's pray. I just want to read a passage of Scripture, and I want you to meditate on this so you can keep your 
I'll close and just focus in on these words. This is a prophecy about Jesus, which came 800 years before he actually came. It says this. Yet it was our weaknesses that Jesus carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. And he was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Romans 8, 11 reads, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. I just want to give you a few minutes to reflect and have a conversation to God, with God and talk to Him about the parts of your heart that you need the resurrection life in. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and you've never placed your faith in Him. I'm here just like people 2,000 years ago. This Jesus Christ, He died, was buried, and He rose again. He is the Son of God. He is who He says He is. And he died for your sins that you can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. If you want that this morning, if you want to turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus Christ, if that's you, can you just raise your hand quickly so I know who you are? So I'd like to give my life to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're here saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want to give my life to Him. If that's you, can you just raise your hand up? I want to pray for you quickly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can pray this simple prayer just in your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on a cross for my sins that you were buried and three days later you rose from the dead 
And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I give you my life today. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. Father God, I thank you for those people that have given their lives to you. I thank you, Father God, that this is what you've been doing all over our planet. For 2,000 years, you've been saving people and making that which was dead come alive again. And Father God, I just pray for every person here to experience your resurrection life. We need you, God. We can't resurrect ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't make that which was dead alive again. Come and bring your resurrection life into our hearts and our minds. We need you, Jesus. And all his people said, Amen. 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 Thank you so much.